Hey listeners, I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with director Alan Souza. Alan's directing credits include productions at the Drury Lane Theatre, Human Race Theatre, Laguna Playhouse, Only Theatre, Arkansas Rep, Walnut Street Theatre, The New Theatre, Maltz Jupiter Theatre, Virginia Musical Theatre, 3D Theatrics, Texas Shakespeare Festival, New Jersey Rep, Springfield Contemporary Theatre, The Engeman Theatre, and The Abingdon Theatre in New York City, among many others. Alan is especially known for conceiving and directing a 10-person version of Oliver at the Human Race Theater and for working in conjunction with the Lerner Estate on his postmodern Camelot at the Drury Lane Theater in Chicago. Alan has directed benefit performances on Broadway for both the Actors Fund and the Christopher Reeve Foundation and is a director and teaching artist for the Broadway Dreams Foundation. Listeners, Alan is brilliant in every way. Not only is he an incredibly accomplished director, but he's also incredibly articulate when talking about the business as well. Of course, we talked about the reality of the pandemic, and though devastating, he talks about how this time can be used as an incubator for new ideas and projects. He explains that people are talking and listening more than they ever have been. A highlight of our conversation for me is when he talks about how characters should be three-dimensional and resemble the human condition, beautiful flaws and all. I love that. And how to capture that in a performance. And of course, we talk about the audition and the callback and how doing the scene or the song is only a fraction of your overall audition. The conversation that happens before and after the work is just as important, maybe even more so. This is something that you maybe already know or someone has said before, but Alan explains it in a way that I've never even thought of before. I've loved getting to know Alan and I know that you will too. So without further ado, my conversation with director Alan Souza. All right, I am here with Alan Souza. I am, well, again, I'm not here with Alan. We are doing this over the uh, many technological advancements we have that that makes podcast recording over the interwebs possible. I am so happy to be looking at you through my computer and that you are part of the podcast today. Thank you so much, Alan. Thanks for including me, Robbie. Of course, of course. We haven't really been talking so much about the pandemic and everything that's happening, because I know that we will get through this and we will, uh, the industry will change and we don't know totally what it's going to look like. I think it's going to be a different world for so many people and so many avenues of the business. But I like to know, you know, what were you doing when this all happened? Like, what was life like in March for you? What were you working on? What were you hoped to be working on? And maybe how it all kind of slowly came to an unfortunate halt for you. Well, the great irony is that 2020 for me was going to be about me uh, building my own projects. So I decided to to look about a year ago, I decided to look past just filling my calendar with all these regional shows that that even though I value them, and I think I've done some really exciting work with folks, uh, people don't necessarily see. There are ideas, there are stories, there are projects that have great interest to me that I have to keep putting to the side because 
my calendar doesn't allow them. So I was thinking, okay, so I may take a pay cut and I may have to sort of find my way and, and be creative, et cetera, et cetera, and how I do that. Um, and then it all got canceled. So we all took a pay cut yep. and we all, <laughs> like, and any, any of those regional jobs that I had on my calendar, there were a couple, they got canceled uh, on their own. So I was like, is that like a double irony or a regular irony? I don't understand. But um, I, was, uh, I started to work with um, independent folks. The, uh, there's a fellow named Ryan Miller in uh, California who has a company called RM Creative. And we were talking about doing uh, site-specific stories and how we could do that because he's from a theater background and now he's expanded into all kinds of technology and et cetera, et cetera. We've been talking for a couple of years. So there were a whole bunch of things on the table in LA. I had two things on the table in London. I said I was, I was going there in uh, April to to cast uh, the backers audition of one of them and to discuss the other one. And of course I did not go to London in April. And then I've been working with uh, Ryan and Sam Rattel through RRR Creative on various projects that they wanna pursue as producers. Uh, the nice thing about technology like our chat today is that we can continue to work on them on that all uh, encompassing Zoom that has consumed all of us. Yes, um, agreed. It has indeed. They're making bazillions of dollars. Um, but uh, and so I, I, I've continued to try to find creative ways to to send the work forward. Um, I think I was saying to you before we started recording that uh, you know there are folks that I can actually access right now who never had the time to talk to me because we're also busy chasing everything and making everything and you know all of the things that we have to that make up our lives and our creative lives and so there is time to sit and actually muse on how we can take all of our uh, creative impulses and how we can complement each other and join together with each other to make something like you said out of the out of the other side of this that is that is the best of us that is different than what we were creating before that is that will speak to the audience where they are which I think is going to be a brand new place people are going to be frightened and sh shell shocked and I'm hoping that they need arts more than ever. I mean, that did happen after 9-11. Um, I like to say that I've read so many times that, you know, we've survived since the Greeks. There have been all kinds of plagues and problems and things and theater continues to survive. So I'm hoping, I'm optimistic that it does. And I'm looking hard at this as a time of, of creative opportunity rather than lack. So we'll find out on the other side, I guess whether that works. <laughs> I agree. I agree. And, you know, how interesting that you decided to, before the pandemic, decided to take this time to work on some of your own projects and and develop some things. And that that, you know, to a sense can still be done today, at least over Zoom. And, and you can have those conversations. You know, we can't be in the room actually creating. But, you know, the, the podcast was something that I was working on for a couple of years, but it wasn't until this big pause that I had the time and the space to, to make it happen. So I have to believe that that the arts will be important and that out of this time, incredible theater makers like yourself and the people you're working with, there will be some incredible things coming down the road that will be, you know, a silver lining to us all being a little... Uh, set up at home and and boarded up that that some some amazing things will come out of this time 
especially with what we are dealing with right now and with Black Lives Matter and all the amazing protesting and change that's going to be happening. I have to imagine that that will also become a part of this incubated time that we are all that we are all alone and that there will be some incredible social messaging through theater happening as well. So I'm always trying to look on the bright side. Yeah, we're taking the time to hear each other and listen to each other. Right. I mean, that is what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You're giving opportunities for us to actually have a dialogue. And because there's all of this stillness in our lives that wasn't there before, we're fine. Even even we're, as we're, we were talking about before, even social issues are coming to the fore. I mean, everything's coming to the fore mm-hmm. because there's space for it to be heard, I think. Mm-hmm. And that has to be good news because I think we're always rushing, you know, we're always so busy attending to making a living and attending to getting to the next place and attending to how we are going to navigate the next sort of trend or whatever it is. And all of that sort of has been set to rest for a moment, you know, and, and again, that's hearing each other is something that I've been trying to concentrate on Mm -hmm. to really hear what people are saying, to really hear what their goals are artists that I admire people that I know and that I don't know things I've been reading about asking questions when I check on fellow colleagues and, and friends, questions about where they are creatively, which is a question that nobody ever seems to expect, as opposed to like, hey, how are you doing? Did you make sourdough bran? You know, what's happening? Right? You know, and I say, where are you creatively? Where's your head? Mm-hmm. Because that's of interest to me, you know, because great art does come from great adversity often. Mm-hmm. So this is anything that can propel creativity or angst has the opportunity to make, you know, to spin itself into something if we choose to do that collectively and together. So hearing from one another is the start of that, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I love everything you just said. And and I am such a fan of yours and the work that you do. And I want to back up a little bit and I want to find out how you came to be where we are right now and doing what you're doing. And I know you started as an actor, which I think is always really cool. People who listen to the podcast know I love to talk about how people start in one thing in the industry and then inevitably find exactly where they are needed and where their talents are best used and where they are the happiest making their contribution. So I just wanted to know if you could tell me a little bit about like kind of where where you found where you found theater and then how you transitioned from an actor into doing directing work into a director. A big giant umbrella question. I know. Um, So well, so my parents, uh, I was fortunate enough to have parents. I grew up in New Jersey about a 10 minute walk from the paper mill playhouse. So um, they all, my parents always took my sister and I to the theater. That was something my parents grew up in Newark, New Jersey. They used to take the bus in, they used to go to the theater. My grandparents were immigrants. They used to go to the theater. So it was something that I was fortunate enough to have as part of my family's cultural experience. Um, my mom tells me that the story is that they took us to see The King and I on Broadway. Um, it was Yul Brenner and Constance Towers. So it was a revival number one or two. I can't remember. Um, and I said, I want to do that. And she swears by that story that after the show, I said, I want to do that. And that every time I saw a show, I said, I want to do that. I want to do that. And so they would take us to shows in New York. They would take us to the Paper Mill Playhouse when it was a paper mill with seats and a stage. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and how it started. And, um, and I was just always sort of, I didn't know what it was, but I was completely enchanted and I never changed my tune. So I never, you know, some people say they want to be a fireman or a nurse or kids, and then it changes later and it never changed. And so I had supportive enough parents to, uh, to explore what that was, you know, and, and, um, I, I was, I was an actor, but I've always been directing. I, like when I put it together later, I was like, oh yeah, I was directing. I was directing, I was directing stories in junior high school in our drama club. I was directing the scenes. I was just doing that. I didn't think of it as directing, but I was organizing it and making it in our little, we had like a stage in a classroom. Um, so we would, we would work on things there. So I was doing that. Um, it sounds so pretentious to say, but I was in the gifted and talented program in my high school. And when they asked me what I wanted my service project to be, I said, I want to direct and produce a musical. And I had to convince them that that was a service project. I don't know how I did, but I did it. So I did uh, somehow. I don't know what I said, but um, but it was amazing. I, I did the musical Seesaw, yes, which is a rousing hit. Um, it was not actually, but but you know, I grew up seeing uh, at the time when I was coming to Broadway as like a a, a kid and an adolescent. Tommy Toon was huge on Broadway, so that was his moment where I saw all of his shows. And probably I was researching Tommy Toon or looking at his bio and the program, and I saw that he did this musical Seesaw because I decided I didn't want to do any story that anyone has been doing over and over and over again, which kind of has led me to the career that I'm in now, even with the classics, which I'm sure we'll get to. But I um, I chose Seesaw. I don't know why. I directed, music directed, and conducted the orchestra. Orchestra, which is extraordinarily um, <laughs> ballsy wow. and misguided. Um, but you know, who knew that I didn't that I, I didn't know that I couldn't do it, so I did it. So ignorance is bliss. And uh, we had auditions in the high school and we had auditions in the community, and I sold stock. I came up with an idea how to be a producer on my own, that I would sell stock in the production, and each share of stock was the cost of a ticket. So I would fill the house for the run because you were giving me the money ahead. So we had the money for the sets and the lights and the costumes. And then you would be guaranteed a ticket. And some people who wanted to spend $100 could buy, could only have two seats to the show if that's what they chose, or they could have 100 seats to the show, but they wanted to support me. And everybody else just bought their ticket in advance. So it was kind of a genius producer move. Of course, the caveat to that is that we didn't have to pay anyone. So... (laughs) Right. So it's as a, a producer today could not implore, you know, like uh, use that technique. But I did like when I look back on it, I laugh and I and I did all of the artwork for the like I, I just I found a student who was an artist in, in one of my classes and he drew everything. And so I, I, I was always doing that. I didn't know that I couldn't. Um, what I started to understand uh, in college was that what what I understand about how stories are told is actually a director's viewpoint. So as an actor, I had to turn my head off because you can't be looking at everything if you're actually in those beats and in that moment. There are people that you need to trust, you know, to make the big picture. And I was always looking at the big picture. And so it was one of my problems as an actor is that I couldn't, you know, like, I'm always thinking, I know how to fix that, or like, well, the problem is, or you know, what's wrong with that in my head while I was trying to be in the scene. And again, Robbie, I mean, this is all in retrospect, you know, I was, 
like like sort of tracing things forward. And then um, I went to Syracuse University like you did, but mm-hmm. I don't think you were born yet uh-huh. when I went. Um, so, uh, and I had an advisor who's long dead, who, and I said that I they were starting a series in the Sutton Pavilion, which is, you know, the lobby of the Syracuse State. I know it well. And they wanted to do it. Right. So they wanted to do a series called After Hours at the Sutton, O-U-R-S, After Hour Show, in essence, and have something. So it wasn't just for like drinks at intermission. It was like where people could stay and have more drinks and there would be some kind of a show. And I had a, I heard that. And then I sort of, you know, because I was a musical theater major and they told me that the musical theater majors didn't direct. You have to be a directing major and take the scene analysis classes and all of these things. There was all of these rules and um, I, I often break rules. Um, so I, I somehow, again, I don't exactly remember, I talked uh, my advisor into letting me make some kind of a proposal for that. And I think what they thought I was going to do was like a cabaret show. And that's not what I did. I produced and directed the musical Personals um, because I had seen it at the Manetoline Theater when it was in the original production. And I thought, well, this hasn't been done up here, so let's do this. And it was six university students and uh, a student who was long gone, John Lowney, who died of AIDS uh, soon after college. But he uh, was, Len set me up with him. He was a design student that I did not know. He was exactly my my sort of creator count, creative counterpart. And we figured out how to transform that space. And it got reviewed by all the major papers and we got extended twice. And it was this giant... Uh, endeavor that again like now i would say hey you know maybe we should think about the practicalities because i've been doing this longer and you know i have sort of my head gets that can't happen unless we have the right this or that you know but Mm -hmm. at that moment i didn't i music directed it and directed it and it was great fun and so you know it was like at the end of both my high school experience and my college experience i made sort of like a big statement and then in retrospect, I was like, well, duh, the universe was trying to tell you that you're, <laughs> this is the, this is, the, this is the culmination every time is this giant directing project, you know? And then, and then when I, how I got to directing in my professional career was it, I was working as an actor and there was a long time where, um, I had trouble in my head figuring out how I could be grateful for the career that I was having and still be able to say, I, I want something else. Because I was making a living, I was making my health insurance, I was, I was going all over the country, I was working at, you know, like, I, I, it was exciting. I did a recurring role in another world for a while, a soap opera that's long gone. I did, uh, I did make it to Broadway one time, I did concerts on Broadway, I did, you know, like, it was like all of these things. And so it was like, how do I just sort of step away from this thing that has been providing for me? And I was on an airplane flying flying from atlanta to san francisco and there was one seat empty in between this of the whole plane and it was between this fella and i and he had red wrestling boots on because that's those are the kinds of things i remember is like this the strange thing and i was thinking what's with the wrestling boots you know like that's what so i started a conversation and he told me why he had wrestling boots on and then he was a carpenter he told me why he was in Atlanta. And, and we talked the entire flight back to San Francisco. And one of the things he said is, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm an actor, but I probably sh- I should be a director. I said, I just haven't. And he said, well, why do you stay an actor? And I said, because that's how I eat. That's how I have health insurance, because I'm talking to a muggle. So I'm not going to get into like right? So I just said like the basics. And he said, if you're the only person on the whole planet that ever said the best way to make a living eat and have health insurance is to be an actor. (laughs) And I was like, 
touche. It's like you have a, well, you have a point there. And and I never saw him again. But that was the moment that uh, it was like in 20... Oh, no, before that. 1997, I want to say. Is that correct? I'm going to wrap it through my... No, no, no. It's later than that. So it was It wasn't, It wasn't. was like in 20, 2005, 2005 or so. I'm doing, I have to do the math in my head because every day in the pandemic is like every other day. Right. So... And, and I, and I kept thinking about it. And then I started to, you know, the SDC has those observership opportunities where you can watch a master director do their work. And so I thought, well, maybe that's a way I could start doing that. I could at least apply. And um, I've applied so many times I've never been accepted, which still makes me laugh because SDC is awesome. But Walter Bobby was doing White Christmas in the second year of that production. And so the second year was going to be three companies that went out. And so he was rehearsing three companies simultaneously at 890 Broadway. And I thought, what a great experience to watch him take the company that he did originally like, and, and sort of make the show in three different giant spaces at the same time so they can all go out for the Christmas season. And so I applied and I got an interview. And what I remember is that I was flying to do sing with the symphony in Jacksonville because I had my suitcase with me. And I went to SDC and I went in a room with him. And in the first couple of minutes, he said, I'm not engaging you for this. And I said, oh, okay. You know, like thought, well, there it goes. And then we talked for like an hour. Well, it was supposed to be 10 minutes about directing in the theater and sort of found like a kindred spirit in some way. And I almost missed the plane. Like I, I finally said, I have to go right now. And I, I, I got on the plane and the door closed and all the other singers were like WTF, right? And I was like, okay, I'll explain later. <laughs> I got on the plane at the last second. But what he said was, you sound like you have a really clear vision about why you want to tell stories and how you want to tell stories. And uh, I relate to that young to the, that a younger version of myself, and you should go do that. He says, and the way you do it is you tell every single person that you're a director and you have to stop taking acting jobs. He said, that's the way it works. You have to just say, I'm a director, I'm a director, I'm a director. And you have to insist on that's the path. And there are all your connections will be with people that know you as an actor. So it's going to be a road where you have to change course. I mean, that happens. I'll use like a general example, like a person who has a bazillion musicals on their resume and wants to start doing straight plays. And you mm-hmm. have to actually convince all of those people who know you, the casting directors and the directors and the, and the theater uh, artistic directors and everything to think of you in a new way. And so I sat by the, um, by the pool in Jacksonville over a course of a couple of days in between concerts, reading Harry Potter. I remember that for some reason. And I was thinking about what he said. And I got back from that trip and I was at the Actors Fund performance of uh, Best Little Horror House in Texas the concert performance. And I was at the party and there was an artistic director there that I knew socially. And he said, what are you up to? And I said, I'm directing. And he said, well, well, how come I don't know that? I said, I don't know. Cause I decided just to see what would happen. And he said, well, he said, well, I know you as an actor. I said, I'm the best kept secret in New York. And he said, well, well, why aren't you, why haven't you been directing? And I said, well, and then I had to make it up. So I said, well, I, I said, I, I want, I don't, I'm interested in directing Fiddler on the Roof, for example. I said, but not in like non-equity summer stock where Tebby is 17 years old, because that doesn't make sense. I only want to do it in a way, I want to do it in places where I can actually tell the story. Mm-hmm. And that was the answer that I came out with. And so we were chatting about that. And then I said, what are you doing this summer? And he said, Fiddler on the Roof. And I said, you're kidding. And so I... I said, well, let me tell you what I like about Fiddler on the Roof. And I said everything that I like about Fiddler on the Roof. And then he gave me his card and said, call me at the end of the week. And then he, 
I called him at the end of the week and he said, I talked to a whole bunch of people and they said that I should hire you. So I'm going to hire you to direct Fiddler on the Roof. And so uh, I was like, well, that worked, <laughs> you know, like, but uh, I think it worked because, you know, again, it's that thing of like, I didn't know that I couldn't. And I was just sort of doing a social experiment to see what would happen if I took the advice and start saying I'm a director all the time. And then of course, that was a perfectly imperfect experience. And boy, did I screw a lot of that up. And, uh, but what did come out of that was what I understand now is how I address text and how I address actors. Because the at the time I was reading reviews and the main review said that you hear every single word of this play in a way that you haven't heard it before. And I was like, oh, like, great. Yeah, yes. You know, like thinking like that's someone speaking back to me. And I tried to sort of understand that and understand like why someone who's seen Fiddler on the Roof, because it's because it is a beautiful play and, and in many ways a perfectly structured musical, why they were hearing that. And as I started to understand that, I understood what to put forth about me, which has continued to evolve. And so that was like the first opportunity. And then I had to, it, it's hard. It was hard, Robbie. I had to tell all kinds of people that I was a director and there were artistic directors who would not hire me at their theaters because they knew me as an actor mm-hmm. all over the country. And they said they just can't separate it in their head. And th- there was a lot of trial and error. I mean, I, I, I am a person who values the truth. I've learned that not people don't necessarily always want to hear it. So you have to, you know, what you're actually thinking. So you have to figure out how to temper it. So I, you know, made a lot of enemies that way. And I'm like, oops. And so, you know, you learn things through, through trial and error. But I always think that we want to go towards where we're valued and how we're valued. And that's been the thing that I've tried to um, follow in pursuing my directing career. Um, I think that uh, in the beginning, of course, like we all do, I was taking jobs just to have jobs and just to get anything on my resume, which has made my resume incredibly deceitful because you see a bunch of classic musicals and you, you know, like some people dismiss me that I can't tell a story in the way that I can because they see Fiddler on the Roof and they think they know what Fiddler on the Roof is. Mm-hmm because they've seen it or they see My Fair Lady and they think they know what My Fair Lady is. And so it sort of just categorizes, but isn't that the problem for all of us, the, the challenge, let's say, for all of us mm-hmm. as, an, as an actor even, because they don't know what you did in that role. Mm-hmm. And so what you're trying to do is get somebody to take a, a vested interest in you. And, and the only way I, I got, the way I got through all of that was that I had to realize at some point that the reason I was thwarting myself where I was, was because I was trying to prove myself and not just doing the work that's on the page and at hand. And so when I started to do that, my voice started to develop. I started to be valued for the ways that I am valued mm-hmm. when I am valued, because not everybody shares the same ideas about making theater or how to tell stories. And that's okay too. You know, I think that's all how it's apples and oranges. And I think that that's all how we how we get multiple voices out there as we're not all doing the same thing, because I think that's important as well. But um, did I answer the question? You you answered the question perfectly. And I'm like sitting here like nodding like, uh-huh, yes, preach to the chorus. And and <laughs> knowing that we have so many similarities. I mean, Syracuse, I also uh, worked with Walter Bobby in Chicago a couple of years ago on a Chicago tour. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I, I love that story about him, and I wonder if Walter remembers that story. Maybe he listens to your podcast because <laughs> I I do talk about it all the time. I say it was Walter Bobby that told me to just go tell everybody I'm a director. So because I only met him one time, 
So I, like, I, I wonder if he actually remembers that story, but he was the one that set it into motion. I'm sure he probably does. And I, he, he was big for me too. I mean, I knew him socially. I'd been like a reader for him a few times. And then I, and then I just emailed him out of the blue and I said, listen, I want to start doing more directing and will you, will you like sit down and talk to me? Cause you did it. You know, he also obviously went from a very successful actor to a very successful yeah. director. And, and I met him at MTC and we like had a coffee and, and he, you know, the big thing that I took away from that was, well, honestly, it was that conversation that then perpetuated me to get to a start assisting at the K playhouse and become the assistant artistic director here and, and meeting Michael. And he just said, you know, Write people three sentences, you know, write someone or anyone you know that you want to work with as a director. He said, just write them three sentences. You don't need to write more than that or anything. Just tell them exactly what you want to do. And no one's going to be bothered by that. You know, if you write it in a respectful way and it's short, then no one's going to, you know, poo-poo you for that. Um, and so that gave me a lot of confidence. And and that's what I tell a lot, a lot of people. You know, someone was just asking me the other day. You know, what, what as an actor, what can I be doing in quarantine? I was like, well, send the directors you worked with just a three sentence email, not talking about work, and and just seeing how they are. And I think that's um, it's been a helpful thing. Anyway, all that to say is I, I got a lot of, uh, out of Walter as well, and I think that's why he's you know one of the giants. Isn't that in funny our business that we today. have all those parallels? Yeah, we have those parallels. I that's know. amazing. I know. I want to, you know. You mentioned you mentioned it a little bit, and for our listeners, I, I want you to talk about it a little bit more. You know, yes, you've directed My Fair Lady, but let's use that as an example. But and like you said, producers don't know that production of My Fair Lady that you did unless maybe they saw production photos or or they really researched it. But you have a you know you're known for using a more minimalistic approach both scenically and doing smaller cast versions of musicals for some larger more popular musicals in the in the musical theater canon and i think it's a, a very cool because it's definitely an aesthetic that i resonate with and, and love seeing on stage you know when we see older stories that were written a long time ago but really highlighting uh, what is important and, and why we tell the story today. And I think an important way to do that is by putting the text and the music and the characters and the story forward. And so I so admire that. And I, I just would like to know, you know, how did that how did that happen for you? How did that start being a little bit of a trademark for you? And and why why do you feel like it's the best or not the best, but a, a good method to tell a story? Well, you touched on a bunch of it, but I mean, necessity breeds creativity as has been said many times. So it started with budgets. I mean, it started with the places I was directing and they didn't have the money to do things in a grand way. And what I started to understand was that what we give people instead of grandeur is great stories. Because if, you're, if you've chosen a piece, especially a classic piece like My Fair Lady, I mean, that's, that is the, okay, top five, top five constructed musicals, definitely. And that script is extraordinary. I mean, a lot of it is Shaw, but it's incredibly well curated, you know, how it's how it's put together and how the, the music of that play rises and falls and why it's set there and how it's structured. I mean, it's pretty amazing. So it, the emphasis does end up being, like you said, on words and ideas. And really, isn't that what we are? We're interpretive artists. So every time I get into a rehearsal room the first day with a classic piece, I say, hey, everybody, we're the first people to see this script. 
so we so you have a script in front of you and it has a bunch of words and you're all playing a part and whatever serves you about what you know about this awesome but this is the script that we have this is the structure we have these are the actors we have and somehow we have to make this speak right now one of the things i've come to understand is i actually think that as as a director that i have an obligation to rethink stories in a way that cuts against people's memories and expectations um, the reason I think that is because that allows me to attend to the words and not attend to somebody's expectation of what their experience of My Fair Lady is. I do think in that obligation, sort of like I, I like to say on the back end of that obligation is to make sure that I'm delivering My Fair Lady, whatever that means. So if it means that I'm delivering the joy of that musical number inside of the sort of deep social story that I'm telling that we can, we can be very aware of that. And as I like to say, put the frosting on the top of the cake later, Mm -hmm. or, you know, like a conversation that you and I had, it's like, I can get you to be really, 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 really honestly attending to the beats in the room as an actor. And then once we're about to go in front of the audience, or even after we do for one or two, if there's like a bunch of previews, I'll say, Hey, Robbie, can you get all those laughs now? which doesn't negate everything we talked about. It's just that it's it's falling flat. So now that you understand it, trust that we understand it and then go get those laughs because, because we don't want to not honor the jokes that are in the show, for example, or the joy that's in, you know, how it's, how it's made. So I think we can do both. Um, and I think that people don't know that they necessarily want that until you give it to them. So the famous line from Henry Ford was, if you ask people what they want, they'll say a faster horse. And you know he failed at making an automobile many, many times and went bankrupt. And ba- and then, of course, now who could think of living without the automobile, which is such a funny, you know, like when I think of that, I'm going to actually pull something up for you so I don't misquote it. But another thing that I give to casts when I start on the first day of a, of a classic project, a play or a musical that has been done many, many times and has some kind of connotation in everyone's brain is a, it's actually Tim Cook from Apple. And he says, to my mind, a true creative should not simply seek to satisfy a pre-existing demand, but instead transform our notion of what we want. Mm. And I find that so, I mean, he was talking about Apple at the time being really innovative with its, with its computers and with its technology. But I think that that gives us the opportunity. And the opportunity, like you mentioned in how you phrased the question, is why tell this story now? And if we start there, you know, like like if we start and say, okay, so I can I can mount, let me choose something that isn't my fair lady, like gypsy. Okay. So I can and I'm interested in gypsy. It's incredibly well written and it's so complex the characters are complex and there's there's so many things around that that I'm interested in. I'm riffing on this because I have not directed gypsy. But to me, first I say, what's the heart of the play? And the heart of the play is small world. So if small world works, because that scene and that song are so incredibly structured, that then we care about Rose, because we care about Rose in terms of Herbie. And we care about her heart and what who, the person she'd actually like to be. And then we back up from that and we say, okay, so w- arguably when we're looking at, at rampant narcissism everywhere that surrounds us, no names, um, we look at a rampant narcissist, which is Mama Rose, mm-hmm. that all she wants to talk about is herself and get her chance. And then we explore why she's like that. And all of a sudden we have a play and it uses all of the components of gypsy. Then it's my job to, to, uh, to sort of figure out how to, 
like how that theory about how we attend to the ideas and that fits in with how the musical is structured and then by extension cast it that way and choose collaborators that support that vision that, you know, who want to elevate an audience. And the goal is that you hear the genius of Gypsy and the words that are in there and how, and how it's, how it's set in addition to you're like, wow, either I'm really selfish in my life where I'm thinking of myself first or our leaders or our whomever are so selfish and why they're like that, which is what, what Louise ultimately attends to in her dressing room at the end and why she forgives her mother because she understands her in a way that is that is bigger than what Rose can understand about herself. And isn't that a mental health issue? Mm-hmm. So like, of course, we're not doing a play about mental health. We're still doing Gypsy, but it lets me talk to actors in, in a way that makes it tangible. Mm-hmm. So when you, you know, or, or someone was talking to me about Lacage recently, and I said, well, Song on the Sand is the heart of the play. You know, I can go to every musical and say, the part, if, song, if we care about those two men, and their union. And then I said, and the payoff is that look over there at the end. And I said, so if we can make those two pieces be like the, the sort of story bookends, you know, with the problem that is the one song, which is put a little more mascara on, like my identity is the problem. And then my identity is whole because of my relationship. And then look how that makes a, an, a, an, a loving family is what he says to him and look over there. And then there happens to be a nightclub and there happen to be Kajels and there happens to be a place where the story is set. And suddenly the best of times is now has a completely different meaning because we're celebrating love mm-hmm. and we're not right. So it, it, isn't that Lacage and isn't that playable for an actor? Mm-hmm. Like, isn't that what you say? Cause yes, we're going to put the makeup on and we're going to deliver all the goods and we're going to, right. We're going to have all those things. So, so my fair lady is that story judging, judging a woman by, by her, about her gender, right. Judging her by her gender, certainly judging her by how she talks, what her socioeconomic status is, what her education is not where she lives, where she doesn't live, what she does for a living. I mean, isn't that what we're talking about right now? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it it is, so that musical in that lens allows us to hear, to see and hear ourselves. And mirror is a reflection of who we, uh, mirror, sorry, theater is a reflection of who we are. We're, we're, there's a, there's a thousand people or 300 people or whatever it is in the dark sitting next to a bunch of people who have all different opinions and ideas and life experiences and somebody else experiences it for you. So you can take that information and have some kind of a mirror of your own life when you go home mm-hmm. or when you're riding home in the car, right? And so let me just finish one, one thought. So, the, so the, the minimalist approach that started economically, started by necessity, if you take everything away first, that's how I started the design process. What if we did it on an empty stage? Right. And, and, and just heard the words and the actors. And I'm a big fan of lights and smoke. So, because I think it makes it look so provocative. But then, what do we need to tell the story? What grand gestures, what pieces do we need a chair there? Do we need this? What, where are we? How do we lead the audience in their imaginations? Like reading a book. You know how we read a book and you like fill in everything in your head. You see them in the house and the space and all of those things. And sometimes when you see the movie, you're like, oh, that's not what it looks like. Right. So if you, right. So you take all of that away because I think our imaginations are a great tool, both as actors and as audience members. And then we're just attending to the text and everything else, like I like to say, as frosting. 
So it's, and then I just, it kind of turns me on. It, it, it gives, it gives me a way to talk to actors. That's so playable. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Not playing Eliza Doolittle or acting like Eliza Doolittle or getting a chance to be Eliza Doolittle, you know, like you've dreamed of being, but rather you're, you have her wig on, you're saying her words. You are Eliza Doolittle. What is your obligation to this text? And all of it, you're going to put her wig on. We're going to know you're Eliza because you're saying her lines, mm-hmm. right? But forget that for a second. And let's, what, and what do you have to bring to it? Mm-hmm. You, the actor playing it. Yeah. What do you have to bring to that? Again, I hope I answered your question. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, what's so important for me and, and what I think a lot about is, is not playing like something two dimensional. You know, when you're talking about Gypsy, you're talking about, you know, Mama Rose and, and why she is the way she is. It makes a three dimensional living, breathing person that reminds you sure. of your mother or, or right. your partner or your spouse. And that, and it brings you into the theater. And like you said, that's why you're still thinking about it in the car ride home or why you start to examine your own life. And I think that if we, I think that if we play the stereotypes, so we, you know, we can quote unquote in the theater, we can get very reverential and honoring what came before us and great. That's all well and good. But if that's what you're doing, it's not going to be as evocative. It's not as interesting. It's not, you know, and it's not inevitably going to be, showing what the human condition is on stage, which I think is why we're doing it. And how complex and beautiful our flaws are. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, obviously there are shows that, that are like, you know, cotton candy entertainments, mm-hmm. right? Like, and that's good too. I like it too. I just saw Holiday Inn on Broadway HD. I had a great time. It's just like so much fun. Totally. You know what I mean? I, I mean, I, I didn't think it solved any of the world's problems, but I thought it was really beautiful and exciting and I thought dentist is such joyous work there. And, you know, like, and there's a place for that. But, um, but I also think that, you know, that's also trying to be a moral story as well in its way. And so smartly made that it didn't proselytize, Mm -hmm. you know, that it allowed it to be the style that it was, which is, there's room for all of it. Mm -hmm. So talking about, you know, directing style and everything that we just said, and, and I love it. I mean, I just think it's just so exciting. It's, it's definitely the way that I like to work as an actor. And I know that a lot of, I know that a lot of other people do too. So, you know, switching gears a little bit and then talking about how you find those actors or how you find those people that you want to help tell that story. How does that translate to the audition room? I mean, this is such a general question, but what are you looking for? I mean, what are you looking for? Let's talk about an initial appointment where casting directors are are bringing in actors for the role. What is it that some actors do or have or have prepared that makes them just jump or pop in your mind? Is that question even answerable, I guess? It is answerable, Robbie. I mean, I, I have a one-word answer, authenticity. Mm. I mean, that is the answer because I... I assume that if you're coming to a singing audition that you can sing unless or until you can't. I'm not thinking about how you sing unless you are. Um, I, I'm not thinking that you're not an actor if you've been called into the room, especially by a casting director who, you know, who, you have an agent, you have a casting director. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming that all of those boxes have been checked and you have some semblance of, of, your, cra- of your version of the craft. Mm-hmm. And then what I'm looking for is you to be you and the tool that you have to do that are the words that we gave you. Mm-hmm. Either the words that you choose, if you're choosing your own material, you know, the first audition, or the words, the, the song or the scene 
is a tool for me to know about you. And that's going to be, I always say on my gravestone, because when I teach, I say that all the time, like this is the, this is the way in. And it's a very, very hard thing to do, as you know, audition, auditioning, because it's an artificial situation. Mm-hmm. So it's in a room with fluorescent lights, and there's people sitting there staring at you, and there's all, and it's one after the other, and you have to try to create an entire experience as that person in an artificial situation. Mm-hmm. It's hard. So my job, let me start there. My job is to give you the atmosphere in which to do that. The, the audition to me should be... A, it should be about the actor. It is about you. It is allowing you, it's giving you my attention, which is sometimes hard to do because there's lots of things going on at once. Mm -hmm. Um, And we do get distracted. It's also encouraging you to attend to the material so that I understand how you make creative choices, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So oftentimes in auditions, I ask actors questions. I say, well, what do you think about this scene? I mean, it sometimes waits till the callback, but I, if, if it's for major roles in something that I'm going to, especially if I think I'm telling it in some progressive way, I ask for like a big chunk of time with each of those actors. I, I don't call as many people back. I try not to waste people's time. I don't give 175 pages of scenes in any of the auditions because I think we can find it from two or three, you know, and know, thank and you. know where we are. Well, you're welcome. Thank I mean, you I, from actors I everywhere. Well, right. And you're doing a million different auditions. But if you can hone in, I can discuss, I mean, I'm assuming that you read the play. So that's part of the, I can tell if you haven't. I mean, that's part of the preparation that does tell me about you. You've probably heard that in your podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything's digital now. So it's rather easy to read it. And so if you didn't read it, I know all about that because I definitely read it and I read it the night before the callback again so that I remembered in case I forgot something. But you know, what's great is coming in strong with how I think we're going to tell this story and then an actor throws something else like playing a card game and you're like, oh, like, wow, that's, and tell, and I'll say, tell me about that. Why'd you make that choice? Because, because I'm not just, it's not just like, hey, show me your audition. It's definitely show all of us in the room your audition because we need to see that or your callback. But also in a callback, tell me why you made that choice. What were you thinking there? You know, because I want to understand you. Because if I, because, because directors work with the same actors over and over again, very frustrating as an actor. I got it. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I was an actor. I am an actor. Um, but, uh, the reason being because we know a shorthand. We know that we know what we're going to get. We know that that person will deliver in some kind of a of a a, a concentrated and passionate and um, uh, accomplished way will interpret what I'm saying and the words like will take the company you know because I've done that before with that person mm-hmm. so it's easy to default to that and I have to remind myself not to do that all the time right over and over and over to be like, no, 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 because that's how you meet more of those people, more of, you know, like we don't, we're not all for each other. You know, directors have styles, producers have styles, artistic directors have styles. It's, it, 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 it's not completely objective. It can't, but casting directors have styles. Mm-hmm. It can't be. But, you know, when we learn each other, I mean, if I work with a casting director multiple times, like I have, those folks start to learn the kinds of actors that I like the kinds of actors, the style of acting that sort of seems to fit into how I tell stories. And sometimes I'm amazed that every single actor that came in the room was completely viable for this project and style. I'm like, wow, you're really good at your job. You know, how amazing. Because, you know, it, you, start to, you start to understand the collaborators and the actors you're working with, which is a shorthand that I would have with an actor that I worked with a lot. But the only way for me to know in a short amount of time in the room is 
how you attend, I'm going to say again, to the words and ideas on the page, and then how we can create a dialogue about that. Because ultimately, ultimately, we're looking to make sure that I want to do this with you and you want to do this with me. Because ultimately, it's your performance. Mm -hmm. It's going to be your process and your performance and your experience. And I'm going to shepherd this big, giant canvas of stuff all together that allows that best version of what we find together to happen. And hopefully to happen, you know, you craft things to happen over and over and over and over again. You build things like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's hard to teach an actor how to maintain a performance is what I've learned. You, you can't teach someone, to, you can teach somebody to create a performance. It's hard to teach somebody how, when you're in year three of Wicked on Broadway, how to keep that fresh. Because how do you teach that in a classroom? And I think part of it is that someone like Joe is so smart that he's built some of that into how it's made. Mm -hmm. it, the, the map is there, because I've seen Wicked so many times, because I've seen so many friends in it, that if you, that I stop listening to the play and I watch how it's made, and the map is there to allow the actors to find their way through the map each time, even if they'd rather be at brunch today, which who wouldn't on a very beautiful Sunday when you have to be in the matinee with that green paint on your face, you know what I mean? So <laughs> it becomes yes. a job, but, you're, uh, but your obligation is to the person in the house who's there for all of the reasons for whatever reason they're there. And your obligation is to the writers and your obligation is to the ideas that are being presented in the script. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're finding out in the audition is whether we can find our way together. So I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you and how you've prepared and how you've attended to the, to the material. And I want to hear from you in as much as I can get out of you in the room talking to you. I mean, I said this in another conversation that we had about, I'll ask you about the shirt you have on. If I don't know you at all, I'll say, hey, Robbie, like, wh where'd you get that shirt? You know, I'll just start to, because it, because it cuts the, it cuts the formality of this. It is a job interview, but it cuts the formality and you're not there to impress me at all. You're there to, you're there to be you. And if you are the, are the quote unquote right person in the canvas that ends up, you know, the puzzle that ends up being together that is, you put together that is this production, then it, it's terrific because I have one role. And if that's the track you're coming in for and somebody gets it, but, but as you know, I mean, you know, this, we're all doing other projects mm -hmm. and I stick things in my bag. I'm like, can I have an extra picture and resume? And I stick it in. So I remember, or I say to the casting director, can you send me all of these people's information? So I have it just remind me in an email or to the casting assistant or, you know, all of those, or I'll tell somebody I, that's what often in a, in, if it's like an EPA or a first call. And I think that person is not at all in my world that I understand right now. I'll say, Hey, Robbie, that was one of the best auditions I've seen all day. I wanted to tell you that this is why I think that. And I don't have a place for you in this production. And I wanted to tell you, so you just let it go. But I wanted to celebrate that I think that what you did is like so interesting to me. And look, I'm putting your picture in my bag. It just went into my bag because I absolutely want to find out more about you. Yeah. And that is a way to celebrate an actor, you know, because that my obligation is to make the room a place so we can all find something out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Did that answer that? <laughs> yes, yeah. you actually answered like five of my five questions oh. in one beautifully eloquent answer. And it's so important. I mean, that's what you just said is what I want everyone to listen to the podcast to know. It's just important. And you also, you know, I love that maybe you say that to an actor because um, that you loved what they did and there's not a spot for them, but, but next time and now you know them because I think so many actors just leave an audition thinking, well, I didn't get the job. I must have sucked, you know, which is obviously not the case. And I know it's hard. You can hear it a hundred times, but that's another reason why I'm doing the podcast is hearing it from the people that are doing it and hearing it from people like you is just is important.
We are. Go ahead. No, I was going to say we sacrifice so much to do this. It's a hard business. And I think that if we can find ways to celebrate one another all along the way, every day, then that, that the opportunity that we actually get to do this for a living, we choose to do it and that we get to do it in some tangible way. If we can continue to value that and celebrate each other, it leads to good, uh, good artists supporting artists, mm-hmm. right? Being a good artist is about being supportive of one another, even if we disagree. Right. You know, like that's okay. I'm like, okay. I mean, I've come to places with actors where we don't agree, even in the rehearsal or in the moment of, and I'll say, this is why I think this. I'll tell you again why I think it and what it's do, what that choice is doing to the big picture, but I support you in having the conviction that you have, and it is by absolutely your performance is what I'll say. It is yours to have because I'm going to step away from it. But and it's okay as long as you hear what I'm saying to you because somewhere that seed is planted, and it might color it in a way, you know, when you ultimately get. As you as you get further and further into the production, it might color it in a way that suddenly it starts to make sense because it didn't resonate right now. Because as you know, plays grow. Mm-hmm. You see something in the first preview; it's very different than if you see it a year in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's changed exponentially because we understand it differently. Mm-hmm. Right? We are running out of time a little bit, unfortunately. Uh, we'll ha- definitely have to do a follow up chat because there's so much more that I I could keep talking to you forever. But something that's important to me that I, you know, that I've just started thinking about and is, you know, this, this business is so complicated and we could talk forever about all the different roles people play and how to navigate it. And it's just, it's, uh, it's hard to comprehend it all, especially if you're a newer actor or, or even if you've been doing it for a long time and you want to do something else in the business. But I'm curious to know, you know, what is something that you wish you knew when you were getting out of Syracuse or when you were in your early twenties as an actor auditioning in this business, what, what's something you wish like, man, I just wish I could have like understood that part of the business or, or something that I, I wish I could tell my, my young 20 self. I mean, I think the, the, the first thing I would say is to what I said before, don't try to prove yourself. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a mistake. You know, we, we work so hard to be seen and to be heard and, and proving ourselves distorts the honesty of what we've got. Mm-hmm. It doesn't let us, it doesn't, it, it, what I've learned is it, and I, and I burn bridges like that. It doesn't let me be heard. Mm-hmm. It just distorts the sound yep. because I'm like, I have to get hired back. I have to impress people. I have to make a hit. I have to, and it's sort of like, okay, why don't I just tell the story? You know, why don't I just do like, and then you have the energy to do that when you take that component away. Mm-hmm. So I wish I had, I wish I had known that. Um, and I wish I had understood it in a, in a way that could be like a, in a practical way. And then I think the second half of that is, is listening. I mean, I think that I, we all want, actors often want to be loved. It's human nature too. Um, and I think that actors want to be heard. And I don't necessarily know that they always are. They're saying somebody else's words. So they, they're not necessarily heard unless they're heard, you know? So, so in sort of like what I was saying about the auditioning, like, like encouraging difference of opinions and conversations so that we hear each other and then we can attend to something. I mean, it's so interesting when you're listening to all of this defund the police stuff to bring the politics, the current politics into it. And when someone explained it on a podcast that I heard, you know, they said like the thing is to get the right person in there, 
to allocate the resources so that if it's someone with a with a mental illness, that there is a trained person to hear that person, to understand why this person's behaving that way. And a cop isn't necessarily trained to do that, right? So we have a great opportunity in this profession to be sensitive. And, you know, that's one of the beautiful things is being artists. And some of that has to do with being heard. I mean, one of the things I've learned as a director and being sort of responsible for the big picture of a production is that a leader always talks last. So if I have a meeting, if I have a, if I have a conversation with a production t- team, for example, I want to hear what everybody has to say first, because we all seem to know what, what, our, what our individual problems are, what our agendas are, and what the elephant in the room is, if there is one. And I want to hear all of that so that I can respond to it, which is what a great president might do, for example. Uh, you know, listen Absolutely. to about. <laughs> a bunch of really always have to be political. A really, um, you know, listen to a bunch of really, really smart people that have been gathered for that reason. That don't, you know, that that have that have their insight, and then figuring out. And sometimes it involves making very unpopular decisions or things being cut. Mm-hmm. You know, but I mean, you haven't worked with me directly, but the first thing I always say to actors, if we do a run through, if we do a dress rehearsal, if we do a preview, or we get to a note session, is I say, how do you feel? Mm-hmm. And that, and I just like let open it up because I can give you, I can sneak notes to you. You know, I, my assistant types them out or something. I can do it that way. But I, but I want to know how you feel. What was the experience like for you? What are you worried about backstage that I don't know about? Cause I have somebody writing a stage manager because we can solve that if you tell me. And what is your experience of the storytelling? Mm-hmm. Because I care about the experience that you have because if you all you know, if I can listen to you, there's that word again, then I can respond to you with my pages and pages of pages of things that I wrote down for myself. And somehow we can make something that is nurturing for us and ultimately nurturing for the audience. So those two things, don't try to prove yourself and really, really make sure you're listening so that you are heard. <laughs> because I've learned that you're not heard if you're just blabbing out you're heard if you if you listen first. Mm-hmm. And so that would have saved me all kinds of heartache and strife if I had known those things early in my both acting and directing career. But I'm happy to know them now and to say them on your podcast. <laughs> Hopefully it'll help somebody. Yes, and we are so happy to hear them. <laughs> yeah, that was, I mean, I, I totally agree with both of those things. Alan, I wish we could talk, we, we will talk forever, but the but on the podcast, um, you know, we'll have to do a follow up or something because there's just so many other things I want to talk about. But thank you so much for for doing this and for being on the podcast. I think people are going to get so much out of it. I mean, I, I did, I did. This was one of those talks where I I forget we're recording because I'm just inspired by what you have to say. And you know, this business is easy to get. J- you know, jaded is not the word I'm looking for, but but you are so inspired about what we do and excited about what you do. And, and I know people listening will easily be able to understand that and, and get so much from you. I, I so appreciate everything you said. Thanks for having me, Robbie. I'm happy to be part of the quest. Oh my quest. gosh. Thank you so much. You're such an addition to the quest. I love that. I love that. Um, thank you so much, Alan. Thank you. For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Facebook and Instagram at The Breakdown with Robbie. 
And again, if you like what you heard, help spread the word and make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for another episode of The Breakdown.